This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. My name is Joshua Lewis, and today I've got Dr. Greg Allison on the line, and we're going to be discussing the Holy Spirit. You guys stay tuned. It's going to be an exciting episode. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, we plan on having Michael... Uh, Roundtree with us here on this show. He actually he read a 650 page book uh, in pr- preparation to interview uh, Dr. Allison, uh, who, who's on the other line with me. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit today, but unfortunately, as he is up in the cabin, uh, had a bunch of family members meet him for Memorial Day and ran out of internet streaming there, so he is stuck up there. Uh, Amish style without the internet. So uh, w- w- our prayers go out to Michael. He said it was still worth the read, though, uh, no matter what. He said for all pastors that are out there, uh, this is an essential read for all Christians. It's a recommended read uh, because it's a very thorough uh, uh, work on the Holy Spirit, this book that we're going to be discussing today. But before we dive into our discussion, we dive into the book, I want to introduce you to Dr. Allison. Dr. Allison, can you tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into our subject today? Hey, Josh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, I'm uh, Greg Allison, and I teach systematic theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm married. I've got uh, three adult children and 11 grandchildren. I'm uh, born and raised in Chicago, so I'm a Cubs fan, Bulls fan, Bears fan, Blackhawks fan. I hate the White Sox. Uh, <laughs> I um, love to write, and so we're just going to be discussing one of my books today. And it's my privilege and honor to be on this radio broadcast with you. Well, tell us about some of your publications before we we talk about the your work on the Holy Spirit. Like, just familiarize my audience with a little bit some of your some of your academic work prior to this. So, uh, ten years ago, I produced a very large book called Historical Theology: An Introduction to a Christian Doctrine. It's the companion volume to Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And it basically traces how we as evangelicals have come to believe today what we believe in terms of the Trinity and Scripture and Christ and salvation and so forth. Another major work that I've done is Sojourners and Strangers, the Doctrine of the Church. So that talks about what the church is, its ministries, its officers, uh, its uh, sacraments or ordinances, things like that. Um, most recently, I've, I've just come out last month with a book called Embodied, Living as Whole People in a Fractured World. It's a different direction for any of my writings, and it talks about a robust theology of human embodiment, living as embodied people in this world. Uh, and so those are some of the major works that I've uh, been involved in. So let's talk about this book uh, uh, on the Holy Spirit. You put uh, the Holy Spirit. Is it the Holy Spirit and the people of God? I forget the the subtitle on that. Just uh, the Holy Spirit. It's the series is called uh, the People of God. The People of God. Okay. So so in this in this book on uh, the Holy Spirit, um, Doctor Storms, who we have regularly on the show, love him, admire him. He's a hero for us. Um, he sent me an email. It's like, hey. If, if you haven't heard of this guy, if you, if you don't know who this guy is, you, you've got to read this book. You've got to get him on. And, and we were familiar with your name. Uh, but but man, this book hadn't hadn't got my hands uh, on it yet. Read the book. And in Sam's words, not mine, the most comprehensive book on the Holy Spirit. So what, what caused you to write it? What was your inspiration behind it? Uh, and tell us a little bit about it. I've always been fascinated with interested by the the Holy Spirit. When I was a student at the university, I became involved in what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ or CREW. I was a new Christian, a young Christian, really floundering in my Christian life. 
and I went to a crew meeting and uh, went to a breakout session entitled, Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? Hmm. I had no idea what that title was about, but it was intriguing. So I went to that breakout session, and an hour later, uh, I had heard a message that radically changed my life, that God had not designed us to live the Christian life on our own, in our own efforts, by our own power, but had provided every resource that we would ever need in order to live lives that would fully please him. And a chief resource, in addition to the word of God, is the spirit of God. And so that, that, that message radically changed my life. And uh, so it's always been in the back of my mind. I'd love an opportunity to write about the Holy Spirit. And so this new series, Theology for the People of God, published by B&H Academic, uh, started out and uh, I was contacted by the uh, editors. I asked Andreas Kostenberger, a very good friend of mine, to uh, write it with me. He did the biblical theology part. I did the systematic theology part. And uh, so it's it's just been the, the one of the best projects I've ever been involved in, and, and it's been a long time coming. And it's and it's really cool. I, I admire the way that you guys. Uh, you, you said both the biblical and the systematic part. Uh, you you use this kind of progressive revelation to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and when you're talking about progressive revelation, like each book of the Bible, this author seems to use the Holy Spirit and reveal certain pieces of the Holy Spirit in different books in different way. Can you can you unpack that to our audience who are like maybe maybe foreign to this idea? So yeah, so just the Old Testament has a. Uh, a crescendo, if you will, mm. of um, revelation about the Holy Spirit. So, so you, you've got this idea in Jeremiah that uh, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, it has a built-in obsolescence and is one day going to be uh, rendered null and void. And you've got Ezekiel who's talking about this new experience for the people of God in which uh, God would transform their very inner core, their spirit, and indeed would, would put the Holy Spirit within them and cause them to obey. And then you've got Joel, who's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, men and women, young and old, slave and free. And, and these Old Testament hints of a fresh, new, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they're picked up by John the Baptist, they're picked up by Jesus, they're picked up by Paul and the other New Testament authors. And so there's this growing crescendo of importance of emphasis on the spirit as the uh, as the presence of God in the life of the believer who will enable believers to fully please God, engage in ministry, praise God, engage in, in powerful works and so forth. Amen. So, so what's you, you write this in your book, right? So that until about a century ago, biblical scholars, theologians rarely discussed the often neglected and self uh, affected third person of the Holy Holy Trinity. So speaking of the Holy Spirit, why is it that, uh, like, like you, as you write here, that until uh, a century ago that we, we've just started picking this up again? Uh, why is that? Is there a reason that the, the third person of the Trinity has been so neglected in theological scholarship and what we would call pneumatology has been something that uh, we haven't addressed often? Yeah, there, there's numerous reasons. I just think about the three persons. The first person is called the Father, and though no one has ever seen God, right, we can relate to the title Father. Uh, then the second person is the Son. Now, we know the Son. Again, we can relate to that name, but also the Son becomes incarnate, and he becomes mm. the God-man, so it's easy to focus on him. And then you've got the Holy Spirit. You know, what's a spirit? And then you got the old King James Version, right, the translation, the Holy Ghost. And we start thinking of spooks, we start thinking of ethereal beings, we start thinking of Casper, and we go, what is this? So it's kind of difficult for us to grasp the idea of the Holy Spirit. If we did a little historical theology, we'd see in the early church there was some fear associated with some crazy manifestations uh, about the Holy Spirit. And so the church kind of institutionalized the Holy Spirit, associated the Spirit with the church's hierarchy and its sacraments and its liturgy. And so the Holy Spirit was something for the church, but not really for lay people. Uh, and then this continues on for, for centuries, right? In the Reformed tradition, we've got Calvin, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. We got John Owen, who wrote this massive book on the Holy Spirit. So you get, get little bits and pieces of it, but it really waits until the 20th century and the Azusa Street Revival, the Pentecostal movement, 
where we get new uh, attention focused on the third person, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. And that just sets off where we are today. We've, been, we've had in the last uh, century a rediscovery, rightly so, of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Okay, so so when we talk about uh, the, the person, the, the Trinity, one of the questions that we have lined up for you is, is you talking about the procession, the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. Um, can you unpack that for us as something that, again, we, we know about the session of Christ and the procession of the Spirit uh, and how those two things are related? Yeah, this is uh, <laughs> the doctrine of the Trinity. It really gets deep here. Yeah. But uh, we distinguish the Father and the Son and the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit by what we call their eternal processions. These are eternal relations. So there's a unique, special relationship, eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. We call that eternal generation. Mm. The Father eternally generates the Son. The Son is eternally generated by the Father. And then we have this unique, special, eternal relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we name that eternal procession. That is, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. What does that mean? It does not mean that the Holy Spirit was created by the Father and the Son. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit borrows deity from the Father and the Son as if he's a lesser God, but it means that the Father and the Son eternally grant the third person his person of the Holy Spirit such that he's distinguished from the Father and the Son. And several passages in Scripture underscore this. In uh, John 14, 26, in John 15, 26, in John 16, verse 7, Jesus is talking about the Father sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in the name of Jesus, or Jesus sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost from the Father. Uh, and, And as we put this teaching together, we understand that on the day of Pentecost, it was the Father and the Son together who sent the Holy Spirit on his mission, the Pentecostal mission, to uh, start the new covenant, to uh, inaugurate the church. Uh, and, uh, and we wonder, well, why was it that the Father and the Son got to send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? The answer is because the Father and the Son have this special, unique relationship to the Holy Spirit such that he proceeds from both of them. Mm. And then you've got Romans 8, 9, another example where Paul talks about the Spirit of God, who would be the Father, and the Spirit of Christ, who would be the Son. So the Spirit is the Spirit of both the Father and the Son. Hence, we have this notion of the Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Interesting. So so when we talk about the Spirit's uh, procession. This is this is a big debate over the filioque, way, right? Like the Eastern Church and the Western Church kind of split and divided over this issue. Uh, had a lot to do with the political space and environment, along with the theological environment that was taking place at that time. Um, I remember uh, when uh, Frederica Matthews Green came on the show to talk to us about some of the Eastern Orthodox practices. She described um, the kind of the triangle. Uh, let me see if I can do a triangle with my hands. Only <laughs> having a hard time with it. Uh, uh, the the father was at the top of that little triangle where you have a little circle and you have the line that says "Not the Son, not the Spirit." Right. So when when trying to illustrate this in a diagram, uh, but but the West turned that that triangle, if you will, on its side, saying that the Spirit then proceeds from the Father and the Son, uh, rather than uh, the Son and the Spirit proceeding from the Father. Um, so can you explain to us, like, the debate over this filioque, this debate on why this is such, an, a, a, such a, a mainstream, not a mainstream, such a historic issue, and could you have solved it if you lived in the second century, uh, around 382. (laughs) Uh, 381, sorry. Uh, You're absolutely right. There are biblical and theological reasons, but there's a lot of politics. Can you believe that? The church splitting over political matters. There's a lot of intrigue, right? There's excommunication, there's firings and all like that. So it's kind of crazy. But at the heart of it, the the Eastern Church wants to preserve the monarchia, the supremacy of the Father. So Right. The son is eternally generated by the father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds just from the father. Um, and the Western Church said, well, if, if that's true, there's really no way to distinguish then the son from the Holy Spirit. Uh, thus, part of the theological and biblical reasons was we, we need to distinguish these two persons. And the best way to do that is to affirm the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit from both. Mm. There is also this this conference, this synod, this important meeting of the church 
in 589 AD that it, basically people from the West, uh, the Western part of the church, they were present and decided we're going to add to the historic Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed the expression, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Eastern representatives of the church, they weren't invited to the party. They didn't have a seat at the table. So this decision was made without the Eastern participation. And thus there was a rejection of the, the whole idea because it was done without Eastern participation. Uh, I could not have resolved it. Uh, I'm firmly convinced that the spirit proceeds from both for the biblical reasons that I've already presented. John uh, 14, 15, 16, Romans 8, 9, and so forth. So can you unpack uh, for us, I, I think when Todd, uh, not Todd, Scott Harrell, I don't know why I said Todd, uh, Scott Harrell came on the show, uh, one of the things that I was just so fascinated in was in this idea of perichoresis, that there's like this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And they, I mean, we're monotheist after all, and there's this like mutual indwelling. Does the doctrine of perichoresis and the doctrine of uh, session, or, or procession, I should say, uh, procession and, and, and uh, I'm getting all my theological words mixed up here. Do those, do those things seem to be uh, contradictory in that they are indwelling one another and yes, yet proceeding from one another? How are we to understand those two things? I think we can hold them together in this way. Um, if there are three persons of the Trinity, uh, which there are, so God is by definition three persons, mm -hmm. yet there's only one God, um, and we describe the distinction of the third person from the first two by eternal processions, mm -hmm. you have to have more than one person, in fact, with the Trinity, you have three, in order for there to be mutual indwelling. You can't mutually indwell yourself, right? Two, or in the case of the Trinity, three persons uh, are able to mutually indwell one another because they're distinct, and yet they are also united of the same essence. So I think we have to hold those two ideas together, even if there is tension. So we distinguish the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We say that they mutually indwell one another, but you can only have indwelling if there's distinction, and yet there's unity because of the perichoresis, because of this mutual indwelling. Yeah, I like that. Um, th this is, it, it's interesting when we talk about the doctrines, because this is your, this is your bread and butter, right? Because you did a lot of the systematics on this subject, and, and and we can have these like categories of you know you got your perichoresis, you got your procession, you've got your 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 indwelling, and your you're theologically you're from Southern, so you would hold to the baptism of the Spirit taking place at the moment of salvation. Is that is that correct? Would you find a a I would assume a strong difference between the the indwelling of the Spirit and the Spirit coming up. Um, no, not you. You would actually you would not make the same kind of Pentecostal distinction of the indwelling of the Spirit of salvation and the Spirit coming upon them for power for witness. You would have more of a um, evangelical baptism takes place at the moment of salvation. Is that right? I do think that uh, one of the mighty acts of God in saving us, and so it's specifically a mighty act of Jesus Christ in saving us, is that Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit. So he inundates us with the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon us hmm. to incorporate us into his body, which is the church. Mm -hmm. And so that's an initial and universal experience for all believers. Right. Pentecostal and charismatic, our Pentecostal and brother, charismatic brothers and sisters, even if they call that something different, they agree that the Holy Spirit works very powerfully right at, at, at salvation. So I, I want to say that there's a lot of agreement on that. I, I would then say, once we're baptized with the Spirit at salvation, part and parcel of living the Christian life is a daily, hourly, moment by moment, being filled with the Holy Spirit, yielding our life to the Spirit, submitting our life, our agenda, our, our programs, our desires to the direction and will of the Holy Spirit. That's an, on an ongoing basis. And as you've experienced, as I've experienced, as our listeners have experienced, there are times when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in very powerful ways as we're doing ministry. In fact, we can't do ministry apart from the gifting and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So I'm also going to emphasize that very strongly, 
that mm-hmm. if we're not reliant moment by moment on the Holy Spirit, and if we're not dependent on the Holy Spirit as we engage in ministry for his power and fruitfulness, uh, we might as well hang it up. I've got a lot of questions about fruitfulness for ministry, those kinds of things, how that relates to us. We'll probably get to the latter half of the show. I, I don't want to, to too far derail the conversation. Uh, I, I do want to ask the distinction of why you felt it necessary to do both a systematics and a biblical theology. But before I ask that question, I do have a question from Troy. Uh, Troy says, Dr. Allison, do you find that your stance on the filioque to be an essential of the faith? Can you hold either position and still be a regenerated, a regenerated child of God? So could you hold yes, filioque or no filioque and still be a Christian? Is this an essential Christian doctrine? If we say... Um, not holding to the filioque is heretical, then we'd have to consign all of Eastern Orthodox Christians to being heretical and therefore incapable of regeneration, incapable of being Christians. Uh, I'm not going to say that. You're not going to say that. I hope nobody says that. So I do believe yeah, that the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit from both the Father and the Son is a biblically grounded, theologically sound, traditional view. Uh, and I'm going to say then Eastern Orthodox view would be defective, but I'm not going to say it's heretical because it, there's too many entailments that you don't want to follow down if you say that it's an heretical view. No, no, I like that. That's good. That's helpful. So, and this kind of gets into that idea of biblical theology versus systematic theology. Uh, so we'll lead into that question here in a second. But uh, while it's on my mind, is it is the the conversation of the filioque a a strictly biblical formulation, or I know you gave me your, your scripture verses for it, but is it also kind of a systematic formulation that it logically makes sense for this to be the logical answer rather than saying, "Hey, the Bible says this, and the Bible says this, and there's mystery." Um, is is the is that why that it, this is something that we can say, hey, we can actually agree to disagree because we're actually creating a theological formulation to make sense of the triune, infinite, uh, you cannot fully be comprehended God of the universe, uh, and that we're doing our best at trying to understand this this wonderful mystery that is God. Um, is that is that why it's okay to say we can agree to disagree on this? Wow! That, yeah, yes, to ev- just everything you said. Right? Obviously. We, we talk about this, but ultimately, the God, our God, who is triune, is infinitely mysterious, right? That doesn't mean we can't say things, true things about him, and know true things about him, but ultimately, God is mysterious and, and uh, incomprehensible. We can never know God fully. Um, but in, in terms of this issue, uh, there's no biblical passage that says the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. So that statement has to be a theological formulation, a theological conclusion based on biblical passages, some of which I've listed for for us. Uh, for me, there's also an important historical component to this. I, I really love the theology of Augustine, who died in the fifth century, and, and he is the one who really focused on this notion of the spirit proceeding the double procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. His work was picked up and affirmed by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. I'm a big fan of, of Aquinas' Trinitarian theology, so I will be the first to admit that my understanding and my affirmation of this double procession has, I think, a strong biblical foundation, but it also has a very strong theological and historical foundation. And that's why I'm really a classical Trinitarian when it comes to this. And that's good because, we, you know, um, on those things that we divide, like we're going to divide over those things that the Bible is so clear about. And this is one of the things that, in fact, the Church Universal has disagreed about. So it's it doesn't have that same level of clarity. So so we're, we're placing it in this non-essential category. And I think that's a, that's a, helpful, that's a helpful thing to do when talking about uh, unity, but both standing for 
true foundational uh, Christian orthodoxy. So, so in talking about biblical theology, can you explain to us why you felt the necessity to both handle this book on the Holy Spirit from both a systematic, which, you know, being raised evangelical, like that's kind of like, hey, we got our little, you know, ducks in a row, compartments for everything. I love that. But then there's biblical theology that I felt like I was kind of newly exposed to. I didn't expect, you know, the, 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 the early chapters of this book to unpack this progressive revelation of the Holy Spirit. And it was actually really cool to see how the Holy Spirit, you know, boom, he's in there in creation, right? Uh, and then then the, the spirits work with the judges, the spirits work with the prophets and how these authors begin to use it. Like even Samuel, the way he uses it to say like, hey, the spirit's anointing is for like the, the, uh, the authentication for their leadership. And the way the spirit is used by the biblical authors is very unique. Why, why did you feel the necessity to kind of, you know, meld in the systematic and the biblical theology when talking about the Holy Spirit? Great, great question. Um, if there's anything that we can affirm about the Holy Spirit, it has to be on the basis of Scripture, right? So Scripture is our authority. It is divine revelation. And uh, biblical theology seeks to unpack what the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, uh, what it affirms about the Holy Spirit. So that's why we started with biblical theology. Mm -hmm. So from Genesis and the Pentateuch and into the prophets, the, the writings uh, into the New Testament, the Gospels, Paul's writings, and so forth. W what does the Bible affirm about the Holy Spirit? That has to be our basis. Uh, and then from that biblical theological basis, we engage in the work of systematic theology, which to me is simply the discipline of asking and answering the question, what are we to believe, do, and be today? on the basis of all that the Bible affirms. What are we to believe about the Holy Spirit? What are we to do in terms of being filled with the Spirit and submitting and yielding the Spirit? What are we to be as people who are temples of the Holy Spirit, living in churches, uh, uh, worshiping God in churches that are temples of the Holy Spirit? What are we to be? So we progress from biblical theology to systematic theology, but we also need to remember, even as we're doing our biblical theology, we are approaching the biblical text with some systematic theological categories and understandings. So it doesn't, it's just not, not just a nice progression, uh, biblical theology to systematic theology, but they're also, uh, can we use this term perichoresis? Mm -hmm. They're mutually indwelling. They mutually impact one another. I love it. I love it. So, so let's, if we can, let's, let's do some of this biblical theology and unpack that. I know I kind of gave some spoilers there, but can we, can you tell us about the Holy Spirit in the book of Genesis and kind of unpack what do we learn about the Holy Spirit in Genesis? So uh, verse two, yeah. Genesis one, two, let's That's just right. start right there, right? So, so, so the, the God creates the heaven and, and the earth uh, in, in the beginning, that's Genesis one, one. And then we understand from Genesis 1-2 that the, the original state of the earth it was formless and void. It was watery and dark, right? It, it was not a place that was hospitable to any kind of life forms. It, it, was, a, it was a space without any kind of point of reference. Uh, and, and so the spirit is hovering, uh, and I understand that to being protecting and preparing this formless, void, watery, dark, chaotic, raw materials, if you will, undeveloped uh, creation, preparing it for the successive six days of creation uh, by which the Father speaks through the Son and brings into existence everything that exists. And the Spirit prompts then uh, the, the, the created beings to respond to the Word of God, obey it, become created, begin to be to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so the Spirit is at work to, um, to bring about the fruitfulness of this creation and prepare a place that would be hospitable for human beings made in the divine image. That's just the first chapter of Genesis. It and as as this again revelation continues and progresses as we learn about the spirit throughout these books do we learn much more about the work of the spirit in the book of genesis um let's see the work of the spirit um well we've got the flood in right. which right the the breath of life so the energizing 
spark of life that exists in all living things, right? And that's connected to the Holy Spirit. It's it's removed because of death. Uh, and then the kind of the recreation, I understand it, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, so a renewed earth post-flood, things mm. like that. Um, so th- those would be some of the other uh, emphases in Genesis on the on the Holy Spirit. Well, let's let's move us through like Judges and Kings and give us some kind of uh, again a biblical grasp of how how the progressive revelation takes place throughout the history of the people of Israel and how the Holy Spirit is being revealed through the, the work of the biblical authors. So let's, let's take a look at Judges and maybe take a look at Kings. And I've got people who want to jump to soteriology here as quickly as possible because when you do a theology show, people are just like trying to run to soteriology. I, I really want to kind of grasp the, the overarching view of the Holy Spirit before we dive into uh, how does that affect me, which is an important question. I think, uh, King, you ask a great question that I'll get to here in a second. You'll just have to remind me in the comments, guys. Uh, so so let's... Uh, Let's let's uh, talk about kings and judges, and and what does the uh, the biblical authors reveal to us about the person of the spirit in those two places? Yeah, uh, so not having to do with soteriology. That's with right, salvation, right? So the Holy Spirit would come upon judges, right? We we know the judges to be military commanders, military leaders who would lead the people of Israel out of captivity, out of enslavement, and the Holy Spirit would come upon the judges and empower them to engage in uh, military leadership and military victory. This has nothing to do with salvation, but it has to do with the preservation of the people of Israel. And then in Kings, we have the notion of the Holy Spirit also anointing kings We see this with Saul, who's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and then the Spirit is withdrawn from Saul and comes upon David. So now David's anointed as the king. So the Holy Spirit would come upon the kings of Israel to enable them to be the political leaders of the nation. Again, this wasn't a matter of salvation. It was a matter of the preservation and expansion of the people of Israel. Uh, Later on in the Old Testament, we'll have the Holy Spirit coming upon the prophets such that they would be the mouthpieces of God and they would give divine revelation. So the Old Testament really does focus on these three categories of leaders. So judges, kings, and prophets as being the primary recipients of the presence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We affirm that without ever denying that the Holy Spirit was also had to be active in the lives of regular people of God in order to save them, to cause them to uh, worship God, to cause them to love the Lord and his law. I mean, people couldn't be saved and sanctified and purified and live holy lives of worshiping God apart from the Holy Spirit, but there's just not much emphasis on that work of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in just normal kind of everyday people. Really, in the Old Testament, there is this focus on uh, the leaders of Israel. Amen. That's great. So when we, you know, I, I guess this would be, I guess, I suppose, a good place to transition into some more soteriological positions with the Spirit's work. We talk about the Spirit's work in creation. We see the Spirit's work in affirming a call. We see the Spirit's work in administering gifts, even as you just talked about. Um, and we talk about the Spirit's work in the work of salvation, in the new covenant, in regeneration. Can Can you explain to us the kind of transitionary period where it's all of these things in the Old Testament and more. Its creation is now new creation. It's it's gift and calling for conquest, but it's also for equipping for service, and it's also for uh, salvation in this unique uh, and, and divine way. Can you can you give us that transitionary period from the old to the new and the Spirit's work in the new covenant? Uh, huge question. Yes. Uh, one of the major themes we find in the Old Testament is this idea of a fresh, new, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see it in Jeremiah 31, the promise of a new covenant. Everyone would know the Lord, sins would be forgiven. We see it in Ezekiel 36, the promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out at Joel chapter 2. We see this also, the Spirit is going to inundate 
men and women, young and old, slave and free. It wouldn't make any difference what kind of category you were in. Uh, and we also have this theme in the Old Testament of a spirit-anointed Messiah, that, that God was going to do away with the Old Covenant, which was fine but inadequate. He would institute a new covenant, a new covenant that would be focused on Messiah, suffering servant, who would be anointed in a unique way with the Holy Spirit, such that he would be a light to all of the world. And so we see all of this developing, percolating in the Old Testament, and then we see John the Baptist come on the scene, and, and he's announcing that Messiah would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we see Jesus making promises about regeneration through the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3 and John chapter 7, this, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, such that it would be like waters uh, bubbling up from within us. And uh, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit still to come. And then we see this fulfillment on the day of Pentecost as the Father and the Son pour out the Holy Spirit. He comes upon the disciples. Uh, they are energized and for ministry. They begin the new covenant. The church is launched. And then we just continue reading in the New Testament about the Spirit's regeneration, his empowerment, his spiritual gifts. Uh, all this is unity for the church, his establishment of leaders etc., etc. So I really see this very strong progression from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as I've just traced. Yeah, yeah that's good. And, and when you talk about the work of the Spirit in regeneration and the way that the Spirit would work on the hearts of people, um, I, you, you are a, a professor at Southern, so we cards on the table. I'm assuming that you you you, you swing a little bit more on the reformed side. Um, uh, so just so the audience is catching up, if y'all if y'all don't know what that means, uh, uh, so you'd hold more of a Calvinistic position uh, when talking about the work of grace in the Spirit's leading people unto Christ. Um, can you unpack the way that the Spirit leads people to Christ? And then I have a question about. Um, one of the things that you wrote about Genesis chapter six and how the spirit wouldn't strive with man. I'm just, I, I'm curious how those two things work together. So, so question first, explain to us the work of the spirit drawing people to Christ, if you would. According to John 16, eight through 11, even before people become followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work in the unbelievers' lives to convict them of sin, uh, self-righteousness, worldly judgment, to create this divine disturbance in their life and shock them, shake them out of their complacency and point them to their need for Jesus. You've not believed in Jesus for salvation. You can't rely on your self-righteous efforts and good works to gain salvation. Amen. You compare yourself with others and you always find yourself better than others but you're a miserable sinner just like everybody else. Yeah. This is the work of the Spirit to convict and to, and to expose our guilt and our shame and our fear and things like that. And then the Spirit regenerates us. He, he removes that old nature that, that hates God, that hates others, it's self-centered and all like that. He removes that and implants a new nature that is able to repent and believe in Christ and love God and worship him and love others and do all that God wants us to do. And, and then the spirit is the one who uh, is the spirit of adoption. We know that we belong to God the Father through the Son because the spirit right in us cries, Abba, Father, so we know that we're adopted sons and daughters. Uh, the Holy Spirit brings about a union with Christ so that all the blessings of God through Christ come to us. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we truly are children of God. Romans 8, 16, he gives us assurance of salvation. He sanctifies us, uh, and on and on and on. Man, so we're getting him preaching, y'all. Y'all, yeah, you don't hand this guy. You don't hand this guy a mic at church, man. He'll take over. I like. No, I love it. I love it. That's that's when we start talking about the work of the Spirit and like, man, God saved me, right? Like He saved yeah. me. Like that's that's a that it's hard. It's hard not not talk about that. So so we talk about the work of the Spirit in drawing us unto salvation and drawing us and trying and not trying but convicting the world of sin and righteousness, preparing the human heart uh, and and being that instrumental work. That's actually it's not a Calvinist position. That's an all Christian everywhere position that we are far from God. Answers. Yeah, that's <laughs> every every Christian that I that I know of that's within Orthodoxy believes that none of us come to God, uh, but that God 
comes to us, that he convicts us of our sin, uh, convicts us of our lack of righteousness, uh, and then leads us unto Christ for salvation. Now, when we talk about this, can you can you unpack the, the passage? I think it's in, in uh, Genesis chapter 6. I want to say it's verse 3, where it's about the Spirit of God wouldn't strive with man. You wrote something really interesting, and it might have been your partner on this subject. I wrote something really interesting about how um, it seems as if the, the Spirit was working on the human heart, but then uh, man was just hardened to the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit was like, man, I'm just, I'm just not going to strive with man anymore. I'm just, <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen to me. You know what I mean? Like being stubborn and the Holy Spirit just decide, no, nah, I'm out. Uh, can, can you kind of unpack that for me and how I can understand the work of the Spirit in Genesis 3 in light of the new covenant? and in, in the, maybe the difference in the working of those two things? I think there's a lot of similarity, actually. Okay. Right? So, right, the Spirit won't strive with humanity because it was so calloused, because it was so hardened, mm. because humanity became so darkened. Uh, the, 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 the Spirit uh, basically said, okay, you can have your rebellion and your disobedience and your blasphemy and your idolatry, and I'm just going to turn you over, right? And and then God decides to wipe out the human race except for the eight who were saved uh, by God's grace. It's similar in the even in the New Covenant when Paul talks about don't grieve the Holy Spirit uh, with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Don't quench the Spirit. He's warning us that as believers, we can become calloused, we can become hardened, we, we can become not, not attuned with the Holy Spirit and not listen to his voice. And, uh, and then God's fatherly discipline kicks in and he really has to shake us and, and things like that. And, it, and it's not a good situation for us to fail to hear the voice, the prompting, the calling, the leading of the Holy Spirit and turn a deaf ear to it. Uh, so the, 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 the word goes out, even for us in the new covenant, uh, consistently walk in the spirit and stop rebelling against him, stop grieving him, causing him to be saddened and, uh, and so forth. That's great. So, and I appreciate that. This is this is a great place to bring up. Uh, I guess Moses King's question here. They've been they've been dying for this question in the, in the chat. Does the reception of the Holy Spirit precede adoption or follow it? Romans eight says that the Holy Spirit uh, bought. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, brought about your adoption, but Galatians four six says that you received the Spirit because. I think I pulled that question down too quickly uh, because you are uh, you are sons. So, is it do we receive the Spirit before adoption or after adoption? Help us understand that. I think it all takes place at the very same nanosecond of salvation. That um, how you would order these things, I'm not sure, but all of these mighty acts of God take place in an instant when we are saved. We're united with Christ. We're justified, we're regenerated, we're adopted, we receive the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, uh, and all like that. So I don't try and parse out, is there some kind of order, um, logical order or sequential order of this? Mm. I just say, the, the, God, in saving us, I love the word salvation. It can hide the richness of God's mighty acts. All of these mighty acts are what God does to rescue us, however they're ordered. Amen. I like that a lot. So, so can you uh, describe for us, like, what are the works of the Spirit here in the New Covenant as we're looking for the Spirit? You've already spoken of quite a bit of it, but when we're, as Christians, looking for the work of the Spirit, how do we identify the work? I think Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is a crucial passage and sadly, I think in our churches, too often overlooked. We, we, we look at, we're trying to find the work of the Spirit in terms of ministry, success, uh, program functioning, numbers, budgets, you know, the, the worldly success. We're looking at people, you know, you know they've written books and they get these academic credentials. This is evidence. I think Paul's emphasis is, if, if, if you're living uh, in the Spirit, if you're filled with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, you know the work of the Spirit 
in the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. That's true of us individually. It's true of our churches. And where those things are missing, I think the work of the Spirit has been quenched. Where those things are present and powerful, we see the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in an unmitigated way. That's what we want in our lives. That's what we want in our churches. That, to me, is the crucial aspect of this. Yeah, and you mentioned that, like the fruit of the Spirit. Can you can you give us like that kind of understanding? We've talked about a bit of soteriology, a bit of the, the working of the Spirit uh, in our lives as we look at Galatians. What about those in the Old Covenant? Um, I mean, some of those in the Old Covenant seem to bear some measure of fruit. They seem to have the power of the Spirit on their life. But, but were those in the Old Covenant regenerate and sealed and adopted and have the Spirit poured out in their heart the way that we are as Christians here in the New Testament? Obviously, in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was active in the lives of common people, as I've said already. that You can't be saved, you can't be purified, you can't walk with the Lord and love His Word and want to worship Him apart from the Spirit. But those things that you've just mentioned, uh, regeneration, adoption, union with Christ, incorporation into the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, those are all New Covenant realities because they awaited the um, incarnation, the holy life, the suffering, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of the Son. They waited for all those things, mission one from the Trinity, so that mission two, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and all these mighty acts of God in saving us, mission two would then be uh, accomplished. So uh, we are in a very advantageous place in relation to our brothers and sisters in the Old Covenant. And I say that without at all wanting to deny the work of the Spirit in their life, but we uh, have an extensiveness and an intensiveness of the Spirit that is very unique. And, and, you know, really what we experience now, I think, pales in comparison to what we will experience in the age to come, Amen. where we will have salvation and the blessing of God and the presence of God and the work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in immeasurable ways, way beyond even what we can think and imagine today. So this is this is an important question when we talk about the outworking of the spirit and, and as charismatics, something that we have to not have to address, but I think we ought to address when we talk about this frequently and in, in looking at the person of Jesus uh, and that when Jesus, uh, Philippians chapter two, humbles himself in the form of a servant. Um, that this passage, we, we see that Jesus humbles himself in, in the Gospels. We see that Jesus is baptized in the Spirit. He receives power for witness. Uh, he goes into the wilderness with power of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit didn't empower his divinity, right? Because that would mean there's something lacking in his divine nature. So so we kind of infer from this that the, these passages that Christ set aside certain divine prerogatives. And I say set aside it's not that he didn't have them, but choose, chose not to act on certain divine privileges. Can you explain to us this doctrine of kenosis and what an orthodox position on the doctrine of kenosis would be? And, and should we, could we look to Jesus in the way that he performs miracles, the way, the way he lives a righteous life, these kinds of things, as our example of a man empowered by the Spirit? Uh, or, or can we look at him as like, oh, he's always dropping his God card when he's performing miracles and living righteously? Uh, help us understand that kind of kenosis language and, and, and how that plays into him as our example. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to ask all the easy questions, oh, you know, yeah. now as, as we're winding down with the show. <laughs> so kenosis, uh, it comes from a Greek word in Philippians chapter two, ekenos, and you can hear the similarities. Uh, so Jesus, this incarnate son, uh, sorry, the eternal son in becoming incarnate, emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being, for, being found in the likeness of man. So he takes on the fullness of human nature, uh, mind, body, uh, soul, spirit, um, will, emotions, etc., etc. He becomes the God-man. I do not understand Philippians 2 as affirming that the eternal Son of God, in emptying himself and humbling himself, gave up any of his divine attributes. First, I don't think that's what the passage means. Secondly, I don't think that's even possible. That's right. Uh, the passage doesn't say he emptied it, he uh, emptied himself of his divine attributes, but he emptied himself by taking on human nature. So mm -hmm. the incarnation is not about subtraction of divine attributes, but it's about the addition of, of human nature. That's good. So he doesn't become anything less than he ever was. 
I mean, even as he's lying in the manger and as he's sleeping in the bottom of the boat in the midst of the tempest, he's still sustaining the universe with the word of his power, uh, even as he is the incarnate son. So, um, so I, I, I think the son who is in an eternal relationship with the father and the Holy Spirit, uh, he continues that Trinitarian or those Trinitarian relations. But now as the God man, according to John 4:33, he is filled without measure with the Holy Spirit. So as the God man, he does everything that he does. He teaches, he disciples, he confronts, uh, he dies, he resurrects, uh, being filled without measure by the Holy Spirit. So he does everything in the power of the Spirit. So can we imitate Jesus? In certain ways we can, but he's also the unique God-man filled without measure with the Holy Spirit. So he is in a category all by himself. There's certain things that we just can't do that he did simply by the fact that he is unique and we're not him. Yeah, and I, I like I like that a lot. When I'm talking about um, our charismatic movement a lot, one of the things that we um, we hear said quite a bit in, in different movements is, hey, um, Jesus was just a man. He can do, uh, 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 and, and he's called us to do everything that he did because he was empowered by the Spirit. He's given us that same Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. You know, he, he's in us now, and we can do all the things that Jesus did. Um, and the, the the idea and the goal is to 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 raise that faith and the expectation um, of the Christian believer. And yet, but we have all these other Bible verses that don't touch the divinity of God. They don't touch the divinity of Christ and say, hey, hey, you know, we'll actually leave the divinity alone. We'll just hold to the promises of God. It talks about greater works or these signs will follow those who believe. Like we can, we can kind of hold on to those other promises that talk about those things. Would, 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 you, would you appeal not to the divinity of Christ, but in fact, those promises to, to contend for those kinds of supernatural works? Yeah, yeah, we can never be divine like Jesus. Amen. I'm not going to minimize, though, the fact that the Son remains fully God. And so his miracles, which he performs in conjunction with the Father and the Spirit, as he has from eternity, he, he performs miracles also as the God-man completely, intensively, extensively filled without, with the Spirit without measure. He's doing that also. But it's the Son who is the agent of the miracles, which he brings about through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. So we can't reproduce that. But he is also, as the God-man, our example for facing temptation. So as Jesus did, mm. driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to face down the evil one, he was able to resist temptation, not because, like you said, he played the divine card, but because as the God-man filled with the Spirit, he prayed, he quoted Scripture, he relied on all the resources of God as we can. Right, But there are certain things uh, that we can't do. I remember when I taught at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, uh, right before uh, graduation, there was a little pond on our campus, and, and someone would stick a sign in the pond and said, graduates, don't walk on the water. And, and it's funny because, right, they're, they're ready to celebrate, but it, it reminds us that Jesus, simply because he is the eternal son, uh, empowered without measure by the Holy Spirit, he is in a unique category. Amen. He had the Spirit without measure. We have the Spirit in a measured way. So to say that we can do the exact same things as Jesus, there are some things that we can do, but there are other things we need to distinguish and say, now that's really unique for him because of who he is as the Son of God empowered by the Spirit. Oh, I only meant, I, only, I didn't, when, when I asked the question, I didn't mean it in the sense that, yes, we're definitely doing all the things that Jesus can do. I didn't mean it in that way. I only meant okay. in, uh, in the way that... Uh, uh, when Jesus prays for six people and they get healed, that God can use us in a similar way to pray for sick people and they Absolutely. get healed. And, yep. and we have promises that say like, hey, these signs are going to follow those, those who believe. And we can hold to those promises that say that, not to say that we can look directly to uh, the divinity and humanity of Christ. Like, again, we get into these kind of complicated Trinitarian formulations where you don't, you don't want to get into a situation where you overhumanize or, uh, you know, you know uh, the, the fully God man, right? I say overhumanize. Can someone be more than human? Uh, 
it's a complicated issue. Uh, but you, we can look to those those passages of Scripture that are not cryptic, that aren't confusing, to give us faith and expectation that God can use us in these ways, uh, that we don't have to, again, touch uh, the, the Chalcedonian definition uh, uh, to, to articulate uh, how we perform miracles through the power of the Spirit, or how Christ performs miracles through the power of the Spirit through us is a much better formulation of how to say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, th- thanks for the clarification. Yeah, all the promises of God, right, are yes in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So if, if there's a promise that he gives us, uh, then we, by faith, uh, empowered and, and enabled to have that faith by the Holy Spirit, we, we believe those promises to face down temptation without having to give into it, to overcome uh, trials and and uh, sufferings in our life in a way that would honor the Lord, uh, to uh, build his church uh, in the power of the Spirit. All those things belong to us. And uh, definitely we, we uh, appropriate those pow- that, that, uh, those promises by faith. Absolutely. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, man, I think this is a, a really phenomenal book that, again, I would encourage all the pastors must read. Uh, all of the Christians uh, highly recommend. It's an enjoyable book. It's not like so academic that you have to like, you know, muscle through it all the way. It's a very academic book, but it's re- written in such a way that, that you can really enjoy it uh, as you're learning about the person of the Holy Spirit as it relates to the Trinity, his creation, uh, and his work throughout uh, 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 the created order in history. I'd really encourage you to pick it up. Um, Dr. Allison, before we sign off, we typically ask people to give us like that little golden nugget thought, that one thing that you would have people go away thinking about, praying about, reading about as they're studying the Holy Spirit. What's, what would that one golden nugget be that you would want people to walk away thinking about? Ephesians five eighteen. Don't get drunk with wine, for that leads to debauchery. debauchery. Yeah. But be filled with the Spirit. So it, it, it's... A, it's a ongoing command. Uh, keep on being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean we do things. It's it's a posture that we adopt throughout our daily life. It's a posture of yieldedness. It's a posture of submission. It's a posture being led and guided by the Spirit. And so, my nugget here is to our listeners: uh, begin your day with a cry like I do, Spirit fill me. Throughout the day, uh, make sure that you're yielded to the Spirit. Obey Him, trust Him, follow Him. Wherever He takes you, go. Uh, And I think you will find that you will please God fully. Uh, Yes, there will be failures and mistakes and sins and all like that, and we confess and we deal with those. But if we put ourselves in a posture of being directed by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, I think that we will please God. Amen. Well, I, I love my time speaking with you, sir. I mean, it's been it's been cool because it's like you get the academic side, but you also get this like real passion and love for God as you communicate about the Holy Spirit that, that comes through in the interview. I know the audience is talking about it here in the comment section. Love having you on. Would love to have you back on the show uh, to discuss other various theological subjects. But for those of you who are watching, uh, you've been blessed by the ministry. You've you've really enjoyed this show. Man, I'd ask you to maybe contribute. If you've been blessed, you can, you can give uh, so financially. That would be a great way to support our ministry. We're entirely crowdfunded. Uh, there are links in the description of all of our videos that you can give on. Uh, you can give on Patreon or PayPal. Uh, if you give on PayPal, it's like a one-time gift. But if you give on Patreon, it's like a monthly gift. If you get as low as five bucks a month, you get access to a whole bunch of extra content. We've done stuff on like a beginner's guide to theology. Me and Michael are working through that. We do like worship reviews. We got testimonies of some of the, the ministry time we've had in Houston and in various places. Uh, one of the things that we're doing right now is a book club. It's a, it's a whole bunch of fun, this book club that we're doing. We get like 30 of us together uh, on a Zoom chat. 
Shot, and we're going through Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. Uh, we just got about halfway through a chapter on Jehovah's Witnesses. We're going to finish out that chapter this week on Saturday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, we're going to finish out that chapter. We're going to read from the uh, what is it? The, the 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 Bible that they have, uh, the New World Translation, all the way to the closing of the chapter. So uh, you kind of pick up on that anytime that you want. It's not like you have to have been there from week one to enjoy that. So I encourage you guys to do that. Make sure to subscribe and like the video as we're coming out with content like this uh, every single week, and we wouldn't want you to miss it. Uh, in addition to that, there is a conference coming up that I want to let you guys uh, know about. It's called let me get it up in here. I don't have it in my uh, my show notes. So I've got to look it up. The prophetic conference that we're doing with Sam. It's actually at um, uh, Bridgeway Church, uh, but I'll, I'll just give it to you from memory. Uh, it's it's the pr- I can't even think of the name of the conference. I'm going blank. I need a co-host. I'd be able to pull this stuff up. Uh, but you, we'll check out. I'll put the link in the description of the video. You can go check out the prophetic conference that we're going to be at in uh, February of next year. I apologize. That I don't have my my act together today. But anyway, we I hope you enjoyed this episode of Remnant Radio. We'll see you tomorrow from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Times. Blessing. And, and thank you again, Dr. Allison, for coming on. Thanks, Josh, so much. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.